We know how much you love talking about player feedback, and we do too. What's up, everybody? This is Let's Talk Customer Feedback, and I'm your host, Natalie. Thanks for listening, and thanks for telling your player insights preference about us. This is season three, so let's get right into it. The gaming industry expects another booming year in both excitement and sales. But with the launch of many new games comes the realization that the market becomes even more crowded and the bar is raised yet again in all aspects, including games complexity levels, design, story, and character features. So, can leveraging player feedback help with this? Let's find out with today's special guest. How to leverage player feedback to develop the ultimate player experience in games. Welcome to today's episode. Today we have the pleasure of hosting Latoya Peterson, co-founder and CXO at Glow Up Games. First, let's say hi to Latoya. How are you doing today? Hey, Natalie. I'm wonderful and super happy to be on the show. We're super happy to have you here. So before we dive into player insights, let's hear about you. Can you tell us how you got into the industry and where you are today? Yeah, so uh, what's interesting is I describe my career as kind of games adjacent. So I've always loved video games and playing since I was six years old, just a huge fan. But in terms of like professionally, no, I did something totally different. I was a media executive. And so um, I started out as a blogger back in uh, Web 2.0, as we used to call it. So Web 2.0, um, <laughs> you know, raised the community, had an audience, like found a whole bunch of uh, folks who were very interested in talking about race and racial justice uh, for this blog called Racialicious. And so we did that um, from Racialicious and from that platform, I ended up becoming kind of a writer and a speaker and a host. And so before I was kind of working regular jobs and then, you know, this new blogging thing really led me to be able to go and, you know, do things like uh, commentate on CNN and to guest host NPR shows and wow. to write for like the New York Times and Slate and Spin and Vibe and all these places that I had only dreamed about. So it was really cool. It was a very different time. And it was the beginning of like the web revolution. And so, you know, I did that for quite a few years, maybe about eight years of doing the blog and like running and doing different things. And then I was like, okay, I need to change and like figure out what else I'm doing with my life. So um, 2012 was like a very pivotal year. One, I got Forbes 30 to 30, which was cool uh, for the work that I did with the blog. And then I also- Congrats, that's amazing. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, this is back when I'm under 30. I'm like looking at the classes. I got the magazine still. And so that was very cool. And then I also uh, did a night fellowship at Stanford and got to spend a year um, at Stanford thinking about the future of media and the future of journalism. And then from there, I came out into doing essentially media management. So I went to Al Jazeera America as they were launching. So I worked with the international channel. Um, and then I got pushed out of there to go to Fusion, which was like Disney and Univision, trying to do like new things around diverse uh, millennials and what they were looking for out of news. And then I got pushed out of there to come help relaunch ESPN's The Undefeated. Um, which was about uh, race and sports. And so I did that for three or four years, you know, learned a ton at Disney, started doing VRAR work, started doing AIML work. And so, you know, it's just super interesting in this. And the entire time, I had this really good friend, Mitu, who, you know, at that time we were brunch buddies. We were rather like two brown girls who were really interested in games. And so, you know, we had been talking and hanging out. Uh, we had met through other mutual friends for, you know, at that point, probably about uh, seven or eight years. And so she was coming out of her last startup. It was like an AI tools company called Spirit AI. Um, so she was coming out of her last startup. She was like, hey, we should start a game studio. And I was like, well, I have no experience. Like, what, 
what are we gonna do? <laughs> just kicking stuff around like not really serious you know it's like the brunch conversation with your own girls you're like yeah i'm going to just have this you know with the mimosas on the side of course (laughs) mimosas on the side we should do this we should do that and that's probably where it would have stayed except uh both mitu and i are fairly high profile and so someone heard uh i think some of our friends were like oh Latoya and mitu are doing something so they told um some folks at hbo so we got this call out of the blue that was like hey do you guys want to pitch a game based on Issa Rae's Insecure, which at that time was like one of the hottest properties at HBO. And we were like, wow, oh, oh, okay, this is real. Like, we need to do something, to, you know, quickly. It was not just a conversation at Brunt. started <laughs> as that. I mean, like literally we were doing the contracts and they were like, do you guys have a business name yet? We're like, um, yeah, give us a weekend. Give us a second there. <laughs> but, you know, with that action, it became real. So we're like, okay, like let's let's get into this. Um, and so that's how we became kind of game studio pioneers. And it's been three years since that happened. So 2019 um, is when we started. And we have, I mean, it's been a whole journey with a whole pandemic, but you know, that's kind of the origin story. Well, it's such an amazing career path and we're so grateful, grateful to have you here. This is amazing. So before we start the questions, we have an interesting story. Welcome to Tales from the Feedback Group. Amusing, exquisite, and horrific feedback stories gone, well, wrong. It's 2009. EA decides that they want to send the media an item from The Godfather 2. The item specifically was brass knuckles. Now, hear this. I don't know if you know that, but sending out brass knuckles is like sending out weapons. So it still is, and it was back then too, illegal in many US states. You can just go ahead and ship weapons. So this was illegal in so many US states, including, of course, California, where EA is based. From here, a comedy of errors starts in which EA sends a message around to the media asking them to send back the brass knuckles and apologizing for the situation. And however, big problem here, if the media were to send them brass knuckles back then they would be breaking the law by shipping the weapons back to California and so it was all very messy and a fantastic story in my opinion after setting out to get press members excited about being a criminal mastermind well they almost turned them all into unwitting real life criminals thank you for listening and see you next week in Tales from the Feedback Group So with that story in mind, we can't wait to hear what Latoya has to say about all this. So let's start. For the first question today, we would like to, uh, if you can introduce us a bit to your role in the company and what do you do as the co-founder and CXO at Glow Up Games? Absolutely. So I'm a co-founder. Uh, <laughs> I've been there from the beginning. <laughs> and uh, essentially, you know, being a co-founder is weird because you have the skills that you thought you were bringing to a role and then what's actually happening. Um, and so initially even like there's no real role in games for the things that I was doing. Um, and particularly like looking around uh, at thinking about the marketing, thinking about, um, you know, how you create a cultural product, thinking about how you build community around that, um, the types of writing that we were trying to do, the types of in general, like the mechanic we created uh, with our friend Adongo. 
all of those things had not been done before. And so it was actually Mitsu who came with the idea where she was like, oh, there's this new cool like executive title. So like, I didn't really want to be uh, the chief operating officer, though I do a lot of that work. Um, that sounds too serious for you. <laughs> I'm a little serious. I've always been a creative. So I'm like, that's a little weird. I don't want to do that. And then Mitsu's the CEO. And so I was like, okay, that, that job's taken. And so Mitsu kind of says, like, well, what about CXO? And I was like, well, what's the X? And she was like, I always like X in general. So I was like, what's the X? And she was like, chief experience officer. And when I started looking into like what at that time was kind of a nascent role with this, like with this whole idea of user experience, um, I was like, you know, this does seem to fit a lot of the interest that I have and a lot of the stuff that I'm looking for and what to do. Um, so, you know, but day to day, my Lord, it's just any kind of running a business, particularly through a pandemic and everything like uh, there are some days that you're doing everything you, yeah, you wear any <laughs> possible. And so Mitsu is the engineering partner and she is the person that has the engineer brain. I do not. Right. I understand some of the technology and I do some stuff, but I'm not the person. That's it's doing actually things. a great mix. Yes. <laughs> so uh, a lot of times, like, it's kind of like Mitsu's got the engineering bucket and that's like her main focus. And then I'm kind of like over whatever the hell else is happening on the other side, <laughs> um, which could be anything. So there's, there are days that I spend kind of like deeply creative and thinking about rollouts and thinking about, you know, like we have to relaunch our brand soon. So I'm like, okay, you know, who are we now? Like we've come to this pandemic. What's going on with Glove Games? Who are we? Like, how do we redo our website? What are we doing in terms of our TikTok strategy? How are we working that out and creating the assets and dealing with that? There's also a lot of days that I'm like dealing with lawyers, going through legal. Uh, the last week was health insurance. <laughs> like it was, you know, all the things that you require that you're required to keep a company afloat. Um, and then, you know, I oversaw a lot of the playtesting. I oversee a lot of the partnerships uh, that we enter into everything from music to influencers, like, so it's a big mix. Any like day to day, it was so chaotic that I started like organizing my days into just one focus. So I'm just like, I don't want to be trying to switch the, so, this is the business administration day. So we're just doing like accounting, legal, like all this other stuff that we need to get done. Uh, biz dev and ops. And then this day is social media and just being creative and figuring stuff out. This day is the actual game, which again, like, uh, I feel like I work way less on the game than I really thought that I would coming in. <laughs> yeah, it seems like it. <laughs> yeah, other things like keeping employees, you know, together and paid and stuff like that. Um, so there's a, you know, there's a day that I'm like, okay, here's the game design part. Like, here's the piece that need to come together for that. There's another day where I'm like, okay, this is the customer part. Here's all the stuff that needs to come together for that. And then there's a day of, again, being co-founder and like fundraising and figuring out how we were telling our brand story and doing decks and doing all that stuff and, and you know, and doing future business things. So it is definitely a range day to day. There's not really a set how anything comes together. It's just, you know, trying to uh, respond to all the different things that are happening, particularly in these times through pandemic markets, you know, contraction, all of those things. That sounds like a startup. It's, it's a startup. <laughs> Chaos and burning flames. That's what it is. Wow, that sounds really interesting, but really challenging also. Yeah. <laughs> so challenging we know that. Yeah. Of course, of course. And we know that Glob Games is a new creative R&D studio focusing on telling beautifully crafted stories using mobile, AR, VR, AI, and other emerging technologies. Can you tell us more about how Glow Up Games was born and what are you working on now? How do you mix all of these technologies? Yeah, so, you know, we're a game studio kind of first and foremost, right? We love to make games, that's what we do. 
But um, we realized that in addressing the audience we wanted to address and in looking at the market challenge. So we formed in part because Mitsu and I didn't see ourselves reflected in the stories that are being told, particularly in games. And so, you know, like I said, I've been playing, whoo, whoo, I hate saying this number now, and I'm like, oh man, 30 years, that's uh, <laughs> number one. Thank you for the honesty, Latoya. Thank you. I'm like, as I've been playing for 30 years now, oh, fuck, I'm getting up there. But I've been playing for about 30 years. And when I uh, played for 30 years, you know, you would think that there would be the opportunities to play as folks that look like me. So back in 2012, I gave a talk at South by Southwest uh, with Naomi uh, uh, Naomi Clark and Anne Guy Kroll. And we were talking about this kind of, you know, video games as, as people of color. And, you know, I had tried to find the statistics. I was just like, you know, by hand going through it. I'm like, you know, in 40 years of gaming, if I want to play as a black female character, I have like 12 opportunities. And then uh, yeah, at the time, there's another blog called Microscopic. So they were like crowdsourcing. And we came up with about like 50 or 60 playable black characters, not main characters, not main, not main story protagonists, but you know, just can I play? As somebody that's black, <laughs> just, and, you know, then those numbers get way worse. Wow. They got like sports games, and so it's it's one of those years, like wow, it's been forty years, and there's only like a handful of opportunities to play somebody that looks like me. Uh, Mitzi was actually feeling the same way in terms of also being a brown skinned girl. She's South Asian, uh, specifically British Bangladeshi, but in terms of you know not seeing the types of representation that she would want, the types of stories, the types of like, you know lived experiences that we've had. And so, you know, outside of a few kind of shining exceptions, like Def Jam games or things like that, there's generally a few and far between. So one of the things that we ended up uh, really wanting to focus on was serving of what we were calling like the largest hidden market of players, which are players like us, people who are already playing games, who already love games. Like it's not a new market in the sense of, you know, trying to create something from scratch, trying to change player behavior. It's already there. Yeah, it's already there. And so, you know, and initially, this is such an interesting story too. Initially, we were calling ourselves the Fenty Beauty of interactive entertainment. Um, because that's something that oh, we oh, I like that. But also, like, what completely do, it's not like there was a shortage of beauty companies, right? Like, in the same way, there's not a shortage of game companies, but there was a shortage of companies listening to consumers and providing the number of shades they needed and providing what people wanted. And so when, you know, Rihanna decided to shape in and create Fenty, it was like, all right, let's address this market need and explode it, explode it. So for us, we were like, yeah, let's talk about, we are the Fenty beauty of interactive entertainment. We are looking at this audience that's already there and trying to hyper-serve them, making sure that they are, you know, in a place where they can be um, seen and heard and represented. And so we did that. But what's interesting is that gaming is very, very um, male-dominated, even still. Um, and it's very male focused. Like there's this idea of an ideal player and that ideal player. Yeah. It's interesting. Like people still think it's teens and it's not the average gamer is 30 years old. Um, but they still think that it's a kind of like a youngish white man is kind of like your ideal player. The person that's going to spend the most money, all these different things. So everything is calibrated toward that player. There's nothing wrong with that player. It's just that that's not the only thing in the world. And so we would be talking to investors and like, they would literally, they had never heard of Fenty Beauty. They didn't understand what we were talking about. Like they had no, 
when we pitched to women, they got plenty <laughs> yeah, of, of games. Okay, yes, fancy Rihanna. If everybody was like, this is black investors. Oh yeah, fancy. We got it. We got it. <laughs> games investors. Who? What? What does that even mean? So we were coming at it from a very different angle from the beginning. And, um, you know, that's just proven out to be true. So now, even as we've gathered data about our player base and we're looking, we're validating our assumptions, a lot of times what we're seeing is that this, this strong idea of who plays video games is speaking much louder than the reality. At this point, the data has shown women are all over the place. Players of color aren't even tracked. So how would you even know? But we are still fighting that perception that the only real players are basically like these young white men. I agree, and it, it as you mentioned, it def definitely reflects um, player um, feedback in the sense that you really get this feedback from all of these audiences saying that they are not represented. And how can people are just getting it now? I, I don't understand it. This feedback has been out in the world, as you mentioned, for so long. Yeah, and, and this actually leads. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it seems impossible. Uh, you know, I, I mean, I was, I came into this industry from television and film and, you know, we have demographic profiles, we have all these different things. So I had assumed gaming would have better information. I was like, you know, it's more digital. It's not as old school as what we're doing. Like, it'll be better. It was not better. Yeah. Like, it was not um, because people still really rely on assumptions. And like, that's one of those big things when you're looking at like customer journeys and player journeys. If you are assuming you are going to miss the most important piece of what your player is trying to say or what your customer is trying to say to you, if you assume anything. So, you know, we came in with kind of vague ideas, right? Of like what was gonna happen. And I remember I asked even, I was like, okay, so what are the comps here? So if we're making a game about insecure, what else are black women playing? What's going on? And there was no answer. And again, you know, over the three years or so that we've been doing, almost four now, uh, that we've been doing this, we started deep diving, we started asking folks who are these high up, uh, you know, game industry leaders, you know, what's going on? So one, they don't track. And again, how do you know your audience if you're not tracking them? How do you know? So they don't exactly. track uh, racial data like whatsoever. So that was just a non-starter. But they have tracked gender data and they've tracked gender data for 40 years. And so what's interesting, and like this is one of those parts that is so crucial to understand about, like we're talking about customer feedback. What was happening in the games industry and what is still happening in the games industry is that they are hearing from customers, hey, we want to see more diverse stories. Like there's reports out from Muzu and all these other places. Um, you know, there's not enough diverse player representation. There's not enough representation of storytelling. Like players want to see more diverse experiences. And the games industry is like, yeah, but you know, why? Who cares? So they're going to continue to do. Yeah, well, a lot of people care. <laughs> a lot of people care, but like on that side, no. And you see it in the way in which they treat data about women. So we've had gender data for 40 plus years. It's not the same problem that we had before. Um, and so you know things like women drive 70% of the mobile market like in terms of spending. You're 70%. We're also 50% of consoles. We're also 51% of PC. We're also 35% of esports. Like these aren't small numbers anywhere. Like it's not like women are just not at all. And it's been this way since the late 90s. Like it's not, I think something like I watched a talk from um, a woman who worked at Maxis Arts who does uh, Sims and Sport. And they were like, you know, in terms of video games, 99% of young men count video games as a hobby. Is it, but so do 95% of young women. But are, Why are we forgetting that number? It's not, <laughs> right? it's not half the audience has shown up. Um, but the interesting thing is when you start talking to particularly like men in power in the games industry, 
they are going off of older, outdated assumptions. Oh, men don't like to play women. We're like, dude, we are 30 years past Laura Croft, right? Oh, but yeah, our, our players, men, they don't, they don't want to play women. They want to see sexy women. They don't want to play an actual woman's story. They'll say things like, oh, do women even play games? Like, I don't know. I guess they like Pokemon Go. The data is right there. But <laughs> the assumptions, the ingrained assumptions are the problem. Yeah, they are just, it's too strong. It's like you can't break through in a lot of ways. So that was super uh, enlightening for us. And it became part of the value proposition we started building up as the company, which is like, okay, we're going to understand our player better than anyone else. We're going to have data that nobody else has. We're going to build out the data side, which we didn't start. We started off being like, we're just going to make a cool game. We didn't think we needed to change an ecosystem, uh, but that's ultimately what ended up happening. We do need to change an ecosystem around video games. That that's actually amazing that you mentioned and, and leads to the next question, because I would love to ask you, um, how was the chief experience officer and uh, with all the data that you're telling me that you're gathering, how are you creating the ultimate user experience? What tools do you um, have? How do you gather and analyze all of these feedback and what do you do with it? Oh my goodness, that's an awesome question. So, you know, let me let me first where I came from and then like what had to happen. So. And I've been a media executive for a long time, and I'm used to being able to have demographics departments and people whose whole job is to <laughs> tell me about my customer, right? Uh, I think the most elite experience was when I worked at ESPN, because they had the entire unit of fan intelligence. Just anything I would ever want to know on any subset of fan, like they brought everything down to like deep persona levels. They could do panels if wow. I needed them. They could do, you know, anything. Oh, yeah. How are... Um, Black consumers spending their time at 8 p.m. to 12 p.m. and are they watching late night shows? And, and I could ask that and get an answer back. And there's an entire- Wow, that's time. amazing. <laughs> I love it. I didn't even realize I had it until it was gone. <laughs> so then we are our, our cash strap little startup. And, you know, we're trying to go through, we ended up going through Techstars. Um, and I was like, you know, I need a data mentor because this data doesn't exist and I have to go gather it. And I've done some things like, you know, in a past life, I worked for a market research company. And then in another past life, I did like, you know, qualified surveying and things like that. So I understood kind of some of the deal that you need to do to be able to have things be statistically relevant, statistically significant. But I tell you, the stress involved in trying to like navigate a data collection strategy um, with players that no one has tried to talk to that you have to find normally outside of gaming circles. That's one of the first things we started to learn when we were listening. It's that, you know, our players don't think of themselves necessarily as gamers. And a lot of that is because the image of a gamer, again, is not that it's not marketed to them. And so even if they're spending 30, 40 hours a week playing games, they're like, I don't play games. I'm not a gamer. I'm, I'm not and, a gamer. <laughs> that's what talking people. Well, you know, there's this one game that we love, you know, <laughs> but you know, whatever. <laughs> and you're going, this is obviously like game behavior, but they don't see themselves in that way. They see their identities very differently. And so finding out where they were was a big question. Uh, finding out what they wanted to do. And so we ended up having this, like, basically we had to do panels um, because there was no information. It's kind of like, okay, we need to get to a benchmark. Like, what do you like to do? What do you like to spend? And that was a very kind of like bespoke experience. We did it by hands. Um, I think I did of the 65 or 70 of like the first round of people that we talked to. I think I personally talked to about 50 of that uh, first round just to get a sense personally, of Personally, like, wow. Yeah, personally. Uh, who are you? What's going on? 
when we started doing play testing for the first few versions of the game, I was doing those things, right? Because I needed to know. I needed to know who, you know, are we creating, are we constructing these personas correctly? This thing. What is our player looking for? Who is she? What does she want? Um, and so, you know, a lot of that has been a hard, bespoke process. We couldn't go purchase this data. It didn't exist. Um, and so we had to kind of build it by hand and build it in a post-iOS 14 world where we're now looking at these privacy rights. We're now looking at this change. And so the ways right. in which other marketers have been able to like buy lookalike audiences and stuff like that, we came in at the very tail end of that, where all of this was starting to get wiped out. We see Facebook's business model had to change. Like all of these different things happened. And so we had to be really comfortable with community and audience. Like, does our community trust us? Do they trust us with their information, with their data, with who they are? And from there, what can we build? From there, um, how do we figure out how we reinforce this? How do we make this something that not only benefits us, but also starts helping to change the industry so that our players are seen not just at Globe Games, but in all spaces that they enter? Because we are players, because you know, women are players, women of color are players. And, you know, they deserve to be treated with the same respect. I agree completely. And, and it's incredible that you mentioned the way you are gathering this feedback. And and that's how exactly how Afogata was born as well, because um, the company felt that the industry needed a better way to track and analyze all of these feedbacks scattered around the open web. There are so many places where, as you mentioned, maybe gamers, the people who really think they are gamers, um, would go to really niche forum places. But then there's all these other people that also play these games, but they are on Twitter, on Facebook, on Discord, on Reddit. And then you have all of these feedbacks scattered throughout the open web. And then as a game studio that you really want to understand what players think about you, how they feel about your game, your features, then you can collect and analyze all of this feedback and truly come up with insights that will help you build the strategy, optimize your game. So I, I kind of like definitely connect to your words. Um, yeah. And that brings me to, to the next question, which is, um, what are the top three player insights that bring your team the biggest impact? My goodness. I mean, so many. So, I mean, the playtest process in games is so rigorous and so thorough. I mean, it doesn't have to be. You can skip it. Just like you skip anything else. Um, but you know, I mean, it's super, you know, time intensive. And uh, but every single time I like sat down and recorded with a player, watched somebody play the game and watch them like really sit and try to solve problems and work in it. It was just so instructive that. You know, it really needs, I think, to be a part of anybody's uh, CX workflow, which is to sit with your players and try to figure out what's going on, what their pain points are. Um, and it's hard. I mean, it's hard, especially when you're running a startup, you're a small team. It's like, oh, you know, I just want to build this thing. Yeah. But you really got to talk to your players about what they're enjoying, what they like, what they're trying to do. And it was interesting to hear people dream about our product, think about like, you know, um, like one player had said we we're, were going through and they really liked the mirror beats mechanic and they went, oh, you know, I can't wait to see what this looks like at level 100. Is it like it's all blanks and no words and like this, that, and the third. And like, you know, at the time you were just like, you just make this little like one line work right? and have the bars populate correctly. But it was cool to hear how else they were thinking about it. So that's one. That's amazing. Um, and then two, uh, you know, I think this process really reinforced to me the need for a personal touch with your um with your clients 
And especially now when things are so automated, and even when I would try to sign things out to staffers, they were like, well, do I have to call this person? Like, do I have to be on a Zoom with them at the time because it was pandemic? Do I have to be on a Zoom with them? Can't I just send them a survey link? And I was like, no, you need to ask the questions and then fill it in. And the reason is because we started getting so many other responses outside of that survey link. Just so many other responses. Um, and so we would ask a question, but the players would interpret our questions differently. And so even like down to something as uh, simple as like our pricing strategy, right? So we had assumed based on other gaming data, the data that we could purchase, market research, all of that, we were like, oh, you know, most players are price sensitive. If it's a free to play, they kind of just want, um, you know, cheap goods, cheap things, 99 cents, $2, what have you. And so we were asking a question, which is basically like, okay, what's your tolerance? Like, how much do you spend in a game? What would you consider too expensive? Would a $5 item be too expensive? Would a $7 item be too expensive? And what our players came back with, I had no, we didn't even have a concept of this until they said it, which is more than one person we did the play test with went, oh, I don't think about it that way. It's how much enjoyment am I getting from this game? Because if it's I'm enjoying it, then it's like a subscription to me, like Spotify or something, where I'll just pay $10 a month and just keep it going. And I'm like, oh, we thought everybody- That changes everything. <laughs> like I pay for this and I'm done. Um, we also, again, like we put up a supporters pack, just kind of like, hey, we're a small studio, women of color founded, women of color owned. Here's a $3.99 to help support our studio. And a lot of people purchased within the first time they downloaded the game, which is kind of unheard of in the industry. Well, you know, normally you have to fight, 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 fight through your funnel to get any kind of conversions. And for our players, they were like, oh, we see what you're doing. Bye. I can support you for $3. It was a very different <laughs> mindset in so many different, we were like, wow, our player is totally different. Um, and so, but we wouldn't have known that if we hadn't done a lot of these things that are like personal touch. How are you experiencing your game? How are you playing the game? What can we do better? How do we, how do we feel about it? Um, and so we did the play test and reward folks with play testing through gift cards. Um, so I think that's number two. And then number three is just, uh, being willing to challenge industry norms. Uh, we knew, for example, this industry was built toward a player that was not us. And so I think we came into it being more willing to challenge things. Um, and we noticed that like investors in general were not willing to go there. They were just kind of like, well, how do you know this? How do you know that? How do you know that? And some of the stuff you just have to play out through. Right. So if you have, I would say, you know, listen more deeply to your hunches because your hunches are probably correct. That's why you're making something new. That's why you're trying something new. Um, so be open to adjusting things based on what your customer is saying. But I would exactly. also say to kind of like be comfortable enough with your hunches to push back against people who are using that incumbent knowledge, people who are like investors or folks who've always done it a certain way, because that's what's comfortable to them. It doesn't mean that that's what the reality is moving forward. It truly feels that you are make, making a difference because your audience is so different that it, there's no no market research or not really knowledge on, the, on this industry. So you are truly bringing a whole different view and perspective on players. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, like we, this is what we wanted this whole time, which is to showcase again, what are the power of diverse storytelling? What does it mean when you connect these folks? And so people do feel invested in us in a way that I think they don't with other game studios, just even down to, you know, like me, right? Like in terms of, you know, who can I go to, to ask for advice as a, 
you know, black woman that's, you know, leading a games company. There just weren't that many people that had that experience, <laughs> like Jacqueline Beauchamp, uh, Reggie Fields, Amy, uh, that's it. Like, who else am I going to talk to? I have some peers, well, like, um, step teacher Montgomery, uh, you know, Janae Bryant, like, fantastic folks, but like, it's a small list, right? In terms of who we are. Very small. <laughs> you know all the names, so that's a small list. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I am a lot more, uh, unfortunately, a lot more famous than I should be. It's a small, <laughs> small game, but it's like, there's not that many of us people are starting to find you. Um, so just, you know, I think a, a lot of this is understanding that, you know, we want to be found. We want to be seen. Um, there is an audience for this. I and mean, then it's just about like connecting those dots and being on that journey to connect those dots. Definitely. And how do, so all of these data from this player testing and interviews that you were doing, which is more qualitative data, how do you intertwine um, player insights that are qualitative with quantitative data and all the numbers? Excellent question. And it's a tough one because we're still working on it right? in terms of, um, <laughs> So the qualitative right now, because there was no data, is the thing that's like the North Star. It's the thing that's guiding us, right? Because it's like, we need to hear directly from people what they're doing, how they're feeling, what they're playing, what they're struggling with, all those things. And then for the quantitative part, so we're up to the point where we have like 50,000 qualified users in the game, people who've played through it, left feedback, figured things out. Um, and so once we get to somewhere around like the quarter million mark, that's when our data will shift over that's when we'll really be able to change and see some deeper patterns figure some things out right now we're just looking at baseline stuff establishing our cpi or cost per install establishing our cpa or cost per acquisition establishing um, our ecpm how much are our players actually spending and again it's, it's continually trending um you know at industry standard or higher but we need to keep refining that process and keep letting it know the goal ultimately is to get to a few million to be able to really say, okay, like this definitively is the data set. It's the only data set. It's our data set. But this is definitively the data set that is going to show you that this is what women of color are doing when we play games. And so just everything is working toward that point. Of course. And this is actually a question that I was waiting for, which is the last question. But if there would be a dream insight you could get from your players, what would it be? Um, a dream insight. <laughs> honestly, <laughs> honestly, what makes you play a game? That is the number one thing. And like, you know, the, the rough answer that we have is basically my friends are talking about it. Like that's, it's that simple. But that question is so hard because like they defy genres. Um, and so, you know, a lot of times like the assumption about women who play games is that women are casual players. We like Candy Crush. We like any of on those games. Uh, we like. Uh, I hate assumptions. <laughs> assumptions are <laughs> like innovation, like that. Um, but it's like we like this, we like that. Women like casual games. And when we started talking to our players, we couldn't get like a clean. Like we had all these comps. We found like twenty-five comps, and we're like, oh yeah, we should totally be able to get like a good consensus from these twenty-five games that we pulled. And lo and behold, everybody we talked to named games that were totally not even on this list. Right, we couldn't get, we couldn't even get a like consensus. Um, most of the time, no, no three people name the same games. It was like you know, maybe yeah. two games. And so we were like, oh god, okay, how do we look at and make sense of this type of data where it's all over the place? It's looking like you know, clusters of different things. And so that's been a key focus in terms of, okay, what makes you play? And particularly because 
um, for women and women of color. Gaming as an identity is just a part of who they are as a whole. So the woman that's interested in this game is also probably interested in live concerts. She might have gone to, you know, Coachella or Rock the Bells or one of those other big ones. She pays for experiences. She's probably going to wineries. She probably likes Black Girl Magic Rosé, right? <laughs> she's, or she's drunk. You know, she's always 19 crime. And like the profile of that person is so vast that we really have to like really hand it like, okay, what else are you doing? What else is happening? And again, for a lot of these women, they're, they're not thinking, they're living their lives. I don't know. My mom called, said, this is cool. I'm gonna try this out. And then I like this clothing brand, but that's how, cause I feel masks today, but tomorrow when I feel femme, I might wear these brands and like understanding kind of like who they are as a whole, um, especially in an era that's very algorithmically driven where they want people to be in a very specific box. It's like, oh, they like this. And that's only that's this. Yeah. For our player, it's definitely um, more of a constellation of things. And so, you know, who are you and what do you want is still the core question that we're trying to answer. The big the question out there. <laughs> who are you, darling? Who are you? Right? That's what we want to know in a 360 kind of way. What is your life like? Um, and so that's the ideal insight I would always get from my players because then we can design much better experiences for them if we have a better sense right. of completely who they are. And that is the hardest thing to get, to get a deep, deep sense of kind of like, okay, who is this player? So as we design game two, um, one of the big things we looked at was kind of like the erosion of even like gender-based marketing. Like that's just Gen Z is just not with it. They don't care. Like it's not, today I'm fast, tomorrow I'm fast. <laughs> <laughs> I use they, them pronouns. The way in which we have marketed games, boys, girls, doesn't, no, no, it's over, it's over. Yeah, and so no, it doesn't work. Yeah. What this new strategy is going to look like is challenging because you're not only trying to figure out where the players are, you also got to bring your partners and you're just like, you know, we know you want to reach these folks, but they identify as these folks. And so we kind of need to go this way to get to And we will probably change again and again all the time <laughs> changes and so you know looking at that i think again the who are you question to me is the biggest thing and i think it's going to be 10 years before i feel confident in this answer where i'm like our player is this because i feel like it just continues continually changes well and i hope you do find it sooner than 10 years <laughs> but uh... <laughs> a very cool i'll send you the slide uh that we use when we talk about like that would be awesome is. and i mean she's so fierce and she's so fire and she's so interesting um and you know we, we think in a lot of ways like she's kind of like the gaming version of benita applebaum right in terms of like only hip-hop songs <laughs> i love that <laughs> but again that changes so quickly these young streamers like this gamer identity okay. being part of everyone's life now what does that mean? So being able to like take from these macros who any given player is, that's the biggest thing. That's the biggest challenge. And I completely agree with you. And, and I think that is a challenge for all the game studios and in general companies trying to truly understand the customer. And I, Latoya, I really want to thank you so much for taking the time to participate in today's podcast. It was so interesting to learn about your take on the importance of player feedback and experience um, so you can create the ultimate experience for gamers and players. 
Absolutely. I mean, it's, I think for all of us in this industry, it is a work in progress every single year it changes. So, and in gaming, so I mean, like television and film, right? At least you have a few years where stuff is kind of stable. You're like, okay, well, this is the trend and this is what we're going with. With games, it's literally like every year they're reinventing the playbook. So it's just like this constant cycle. of Learning and learning. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. And that's it for today. Let's Talk Customer Feedback is a podcast made for player insights professionals, player feedback enthusiasts, gaming industry experts, and anything in between. The podcast is created by Afogata, the AI-driven player feedback analytics platform that cuts through the noise and brings you the player insights that move the needle. In each episode, we have a special guest from the industry, including Afogata's own customers that share their knowledge on what player feedback and the voice of the customer means for them and the companies they work at. Follow Let's Talk Customer Feedback on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. If you'd like to know more about Afogata and what it does, go to afogata.com and get more info on our social media, searching for Afogata on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. See you next time. Don't keep your players waiting.